Alright, how's it going? Welcome to the Nine Yards podcast. Uh, a podcast that, at least for now, won't have any specific direction. Uh, I'll just be covering topics I find interesting uh, in a fairly relaxed and conversational way. Uh, hopefully you'll find them interesting too. Uh, a little bit about myself before we get started. I'm a composer. Uh, My career, if you can call it that, is making music for video games. Uh, I have a broad range of interests, true crime, politics, culture, art, and of course podcasts. I've wanted to do my own podcast for a long time, uh, but I've always procrastinated and put it off. Um, But here I am finally giving it a go. And as I said, no specific direction for the podcast as yet. I'm just going to be choosing various topics I find interesting and talking about them. For now I'm aiming to release a podcast every other Sunday uh, from now on, Uh, but at first please bear with me as I'm completely new to all this uh, and I'm sure it will take me time to really get the podcast to where I want it to be. For this first podcast I want to talk about football, that's soccer for any Americans that may be listening, and more specifically the dark side of football. Obviously, I'll be talking about it from a very English perspective, as I am, if you haven't already guessed, English. But if you aren't, hopefully, a lot of the things I'll talk about are still relevant to you, and you will still find uh, them interesting. These days, uh, we're bombarded by news and information related to football, more televised matches than ever before, matches played all through the week, not just on weekends. We've got highlight and punditry shows, 24-hour news coverage even. Um, And understandably so when you consider that football is also the most watched sport in the world by far, with an estimated 3.5 billion actual human beings watching the World Cup final in 2018. That's somewhere near half the world's population. It's not hard either to see why the game is so popular. The passion it inspires from fans and professionals alike. Uh, the skill of the players, the personality of the managers, the operatic ups and downs, twists and turns of any given football season. It's a real-life melodrama of uh, Shakespearean proportions, really. Uh, But is it really so great? Is it really all the hype makes it out to be? Or does it also have a darker side? A side often overlooked or brushed under the carpet? And that's the question I hope to answer with this podcast. My personal feeling on it is that in some ways football really does embody the worst aspects of English and British society at large. And to demonstrate this, what better place to start than by talking about hooliganism. So, on with the podcast. As far back as football in one form or another has existed, violence between fans has also existed, uh, with battles between rival villages in England being recorded as long ago as the 13th century. Uh, If you want an example of something akin to the type of sport football is derived from, uh, just go to YouTube and search for the Atherston ball game. Atherston, A-T-H-E-R-S-T-O-N-E. Uh, the Atherston ball game that will give you a kind of idea of 
uh, the type of games that modern football was derived from. I want to talk about football in a more modern context though, and despite this long-standing history of violence, perhaps mostly due to the growing popularity of the sport and the proliferation of modern forms of media, it wasn't really until the 1960s when violence between rival fans in England became big news and clashes between rival fans inside and out of stadiums began to take up regular space in the newspapers of the time. Uh, thus, a term for people committing this kind of football-related violence was coined, football hooligans. Uh, and the violent culture they engaged in, hooliganism. One particularly high-profile case of hooliganism was in 1974, when a Bolton Wanderers fan was tragically stabbed to death. He was only 17, his name was Kevin Olsen, and the stabbing ha happened during a violent encounter inside the Bloomfield Road Stadium. He was the first, but not the last, fan to ever be murdered inside an English football ground, and you can now see a memorial plaque that was placed on a wall near the site of his murder uh, to commemorate 40 years since his tragic death. That would have been placed in 2014. There have been many, many other cases of extreme violence and deaths related to football hooliganism. I can't go into them all, obviously. Uh, you know, I want to make a podcast, not an audiobook. Uh, but here are a few of particular note. In an incident that, uh, for obvious reasons, was later dubbed the relegation battle, uh, Tottenham Hotspur and Chelsea fans had a mass brawl on the pitch before a game where Tottenham relegated Chelsea had even gotten underway. Uh, the violence made national news at the time and um, was also featured on a BBC show called John Craven's News Round, which was a, a popular show at the time. In the second leg of the 1974 UEFA Cup final between Tottenham and Feyenoord, a massive riot broke out inside the stadium when English fans became angry over perceived slights by the Dutch team and the official refereeing the game. Gonna play a short clip now from a documentary on hooliganism released shortly after the game. The rioting that took place at last week's Spurs game against the Dutch team Feyenoord brought renewed calls for something more to be done to tackle football hooliganism. 40 fans went to hospital in Rotterdam, many with serious stab wounds. Before the match, Spurs fans had smashed up two cross-channel ferries and rampaged through the town. But this was only the latest in a series of incidents this season involving London fans. They've shown that despite all efforts to stamp it out, football hooliganism is still alive and kicking. Not long after that, Leeds United were banned from Europe due to their fans rioting after the 1975 Cup Final against Bayern Munich in Paris. Manchester United were banned from Europe in 1977 after rioting before, during and after a UEFA Cup game with Saint-Étienne in France. Um, in March 1978, a huge riot broke out at an FA Cup quarter-final between Millwall and Ipswich Town. Fighting started in the stadium, then spilled out onto the pitch and later into the streets nearby. And there were many injuries there. On the 1st of May 1982, after clashes broke out between fans of the two London-based teams, Arsenal and West Ham United, that had resulted in the game being temporarily stopped and the players removed from the pitch, Arsenal fan John Dickinson was later stabbed to death just minutes after seeing his team win. On the 5th of January 1985, a match between Burton Albion and Leicester City had to be abandoned and replayed after the Albion goalkeeper Paul Evans was wounded by a block of wood thrown from the terraces by a City fan. 
on the 11th of May 1985, in an event that was overshadowed by an accidental fire in Bradford City Stadium uh, that killed 56 people and injured, injured another 265, a 15-year-old lead supporter named Ian Hambridge was crushed to death uh, when fans were pushed by police onto a wall which subsequently collapsed during a violent clash um, in a match between Birmingham City and Leeds United. On the 29th of May 1985, in one of the most tragic incidents of its kind, 39 Juventus fans were killed and a further 600 people injured when they were crushed during uh, the European Cup final between Liverpool and Juventus, the event that later became known as the Hazel Stadium disaster. During clashes before the start of the game, a large group of Liverpool fans broke through a line of police officers and ran towards opposing supporters in a section of the ground containing Italian fans. A huge number of fans tried to escape there, resulting in a stampede. Uh, safety fences aimed at directing the fans collapsed and as a result of that uh, huge numbers were trapped and crushed. And here is a short clip from a news piece at the time on the uh, Hazel Stadium disaster. On the 29th of May 1985, British soccer hooliganism reached its all-time low. Liverpool supporters began a running battle against Italian followers of Juventus at the European Cup final in the Heysel Stadium in Brussels. The result was horrific. The press of bodies trying to escape from the violence led to the collapse of a safety fence. Many victims were trampled to death. Many more were crushed by the weight of their fellow supporters as they struggled in near panic to find a way out. For many Europeans already shocked by the behaviour of British soccer fans abroad, this was the last straw. English football clubs were banned from playing in Europe indefinitely. Dozens of Liverpool supporters were arrested and subsequently brought back to Belgium to face trial. But at the time, as the rescue attempts continued, the principal reaction was bewilderment and disbelief. So, as stated there, uh, English clubs were banned from all European competitions in 1990 due to the disaster, uh, with Liverpool banned for an additional year. So, those are just a few among almost countless examples of the real sort of horrors of, of football hooliganism, really. But before we move on, it's also worth noting the ties football hooliganism has to the far right, I think. In the 1970s, largely due to the influx of Afro-Caribbean immigrants that began in 1948, black footballers became a frequent presence in English football. Racial tension was already high in many parts of Britain, and the far-right neo-Nazi group known as the National Front was at its most popular point in history around that time. So many black players were subjected to racial abuse regularly at games, often from fans of rival teams, but sometimes even their own fans. They had banana skins thrown at them, fans, fans chanted monkey chants, racist insults, and sometimes even threats. Um, one of the players to be subjected to this kind of terrible abuse in the 1970s was a player called Viv Anderson. He was a fullback that spent his best years playing for Nottingham Forest in England. And here he is talking about an experience he had as a young player playing under the uh, famous manager Brian Clough. He looks down the line and he says, Anderson, warm up. So I go warm up and I'm sat down with him five minutes. And he said, I thought I told you to warm up. I said, I've been warming up. But they're throwing apples, pears, bananas and all sorts at me. He says, go back out there and get me two pears and a banana. Now I tell that story 
when I'm in company and people laugh obviously. But the, the hidden meaning behind that was he pulled me afterwards and said, you let people like them today influence what you do, you will not make a career. I'll choose somebody else before you. So I'm thinking as a, as a 17 year old, well, I want to be in that team. So I had to dismiss everything that had gone on prior to that and just get on with playing football. In the 1980s, even more black players were signed by and featured for English clubs. But with hooliganism and its far-right leaning tendencies still widespread, racial abuse continued on a large scale. John Barnes, during and before he joined Liverpool in 1987, suffered severe racist abuse while playing at club level. Also in 1984, while playing for the England national team, he was racially abused during a friendly match uh, in Brazil by a section of England supporters identifying themselves as supporters or members of the National Front. And here he is in a more recent clip from a BBC talk show talking about racism, not just in football, but in society and what can be done to tackle it. So going back to the time where bananas were thrown on the pitch when you were playing football, do you think that even though football maybe has tidied up its image a little bit, society still has those same sort of issues to wrestle with? Well, before we are members of any football fraternity, we're members of society, so we're doing it the wrong way around. You can't look at football, because for football, for 90 minutes on a Saturday, or obviously football is played at different times now, you can't just say because for the 90 minutes we don't see it anymore means it doesn't exist in society. It is prevalent in society. It's going to take a long time to change perceptions of different groups of people, but we know the group of the, the, we know the groups or the group who is completely accepted no matter what happens. We know who that is. And is, the discrimination affects women, it affects ethnic minorities because it's a perception of that person's capabilities. We're talking about it from a black perspective, but women go through discrimination. They're talking about it from a female perspective. LGBT, homosexuals, it's all discrimination based on the wrong, the misconception we have of those particular groups. And what I'm talking about is looking at it holistically rather than just saying, oh, it's a problem in football. It's a problem in, in, for, for women in business. It's a problem for homosexuals in the army. It is a problem of changing perceptions. And those perceptions are fueled by the media, as Raheem says. But don't just limit it to the way that the perception we have over, over young black footballers, the perception we have over, over different groups generally. Now, despite the countless known cases of racism occurring in football matches, it wasn't until 2004 that Millwall, a club infamous for the violence of its firm, that's a term used for organised groups of football hooligans, uh, became the first club to be charged by the Football Association over racist behaviour of their fans. So you can see how little really has been done to, to punish clubs. Obviously, individuals have been punished, but the clubs themselves that in a way kind of facilitate this kind of behaviour um, haven't received any, any punishments at all in the previous years, and it wasn't until 2004 that that, that ever happened. So now back to the 1980s, uh, when in a bid to clamp down on hooliganism, the then Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher made a high profile public call during 1985 for the country's football hooligans to be given stiff prison sentences, whatever, whatever that means, um, to act as a kind of deterrent to those that, that may commit such crimes in the future. Uh, the trouble was the laws needed to punish football hooligans appropriately weren't in place and the uh, police were largely impotent in their ability to seriously deal with the problem and most efforts by the government at the time with the the growing hooliganism problem um, were laughable to be honest one of particular note was an initiative called goalies against hoolies um, which, according to a conservative spokesperson at the time, would consist of getting, and I quote, 
the more articulate goalkeepers who are often in the first line of hooligan fire to speak out against the violence. The initiative was largely derided by journalists at the time and unsurprisingly never really came to anything. However, finally, with the Football Spectators Act 1989, the Conservative government at that time, then led by Margaret Thatcher, as, as I said just a minute ago, actually took some meaningful action. Uh, the Act and its later amendments identified a number of specific offences related to fan behaviour. They included the throwing of objects onto the field or into the crowd, racist or obscene chanting at a match, violence against persons or property including threats and endangerment of any person's life, a variety of alcohol related offences and the bringing or being in possession of fireworks into or at any given designated sporting event. Basically almost any criminal offence co connected with, with a football game that occurred within 24 hours on either end of a football match could now be designated as a football related offence thus giving police and judicial authorities much more power to arrest the charge and sentence football hooligans. The act also introduced the football banning order known as the FBO. The order gave magistrates the power to ban an individual from attending both domestic and foreign football matches for a period of two to ten years and it could also include additional restrictions. Um, by the mid-90s then, hooliganism had been largely eradicated and driven underground by, by efforts of the police. Uh, in the 2000s though, hooligans, now aided by social media, mobile devices, member-only websites, things like that, were able to safely organise themselves again. And today though, it is like far less prevalent than it was in previous decades. It still very much exists as a kind of subculture. Um, I, now, I felt the need to be very specific and well-researched in that first part of the podcast, uh, but going forward now, I'm going to be more uh, conversational and less scripted um, and more anecdotal. So I think something else in football that can be very dark but can also be positive is the really sort of strong sense of tribalism uh, that it brings out in people. The, the strong sense of allegiance people have to the, either their local clubs or the clubs that they've supported from a youngster, either because their parents support them or just because they chose a team that they like. People love to feel like they belong to something, right? People love to have a group to associate themselves with. I think it's probably something sort of hard-coded in our DNA that we, we want to be part of a group and you know we want to feel this sort of strong connection to that group because it makes us feel part of something because it gives you a sort of sense of it's us against them or us against the world. If you look at Twitter, for example, like every fan base for every team kind of thinks that the other fan bases are out to get them or obsessed with them or hate them in particular. Every fan base has a kind of odd combination between superiority and an inferiority complex. Obviously, all clubs have their ups and downs, so that's kind of natural. Sometimes you've had a peak and clubs will fans of clubs will always be proud of that that peak whether it's happening now or whether it's historic is kind of irrelevant pretty much all clubs will have had a high point somewhere and that's like what the fans really hold on to also they have a lot of down points too and that's what the other fans hold on to you know you get you get abuse if your club's doing badly or has done really badly in the past 
Uh, you also get abuse if your club's doing well. Fans that are either jealous or think that you're doing well for the wrong kind of reasons. People get a kick from that and understandably so. And don't get me wrong, I think it can be a good thing too. Like it can really bring out passion in people. It can really bring out the best aspects of people's character. But you know, when it comes to the kind of conflict and abuse and it's, it almost gives you a sense of like, well, it's us versus them. So it's almost kind of like no holds barred. You can say anything to an opposition fan because they're not one of you. You know, they're kind of irrelevant. You treat your own group well, but you treat the other groups badly. And to me anyway, that kind of harks back to, to that kind of lizard brain, caveman type mentality. Like we're pack animals, we're group animals, and we love to feel like part of something. And we enjoy conflict as well. It's also, also in our DNA. Another thing that you could say as a, as a dark side of football is that it can also embody the absolute uh, worst aspects of capitalism. Player wages, manager wages, agent fees. It's kind of like the, the football at the highest level is like a billionaire's playground, you know. You've got Russian oligarchs, you've got Saudi oil barons, you've got players being paid absolutely extortionate amounts of money. Uh, transfer fees are insanely high. There's a kind of crazy financial bubble at the highest level of football uh, and it just keeps on getting more and more extreme every year. You know, almost every year a new transfer fee is broken and there just seems to be an absolutely insane amount of money within football and I understand that it really irks some people. But I'll go into, I think there's a slightly different way to view that and I'll go into that a little bit later too. There's also the uh, stigma of mental health and homosexuality in football. Uh, in recent years, professional footballers Chris Mitchell and, and two former professional players, uh, Robert Enke and Garrett, Gary Speed, tragically committed suicide. All of them suffered from depression. Uh, to this day, there are less than 10 openly LGBT professional or ex-professional footballers so I think it's fairly safe to say that there's a huge stigma for, for footballers coming out. Obviously there's going to be quite a large number of LGBT footballers like there is in any other walk of life you know if you take a sample of people a certain percentage of them are going to be LGBT but uh, because it's football and because of the potential abuse from not just fans but also the media and the difficulty it can cause for them Clearly, the vast majority of LGBT players and choose not to reveal their sexuality to the public, and understandably so, to be honest. Also, something I, I want to go into a little bit, which could be interesting, I think, is this kind of concept of bread and circuses. I don't know if you're familiar with that term. I don't, it comes from some sort of Roman emperor or some Nero or someone like that. Uh, had this quote about all the masses need are bread and circuses. Obviously that's not verbatim, but um, something like that. But it's this idea that all people really need is, is food and entertainment, and they're kind of uh, malleable. The ruling classes can, can control the masses, providing that they have some form of entertainment and, and a regular supply of food. I'd say there's quite a lot of truth to that. And if you ask the average football fan what they know about their the team they support or, you know, their national team or whatever, you can probably talk to them for hours. They'll have tons of opinions, probably quite well-informed opinions. They're, they know all the players. They, 
they know the styles of football they've played in the past and just like tons of detail and minutiae about every kind of aspect of their, their the club that they follow uh, asked them about politics however and you know obviously not all and i want to paint all football fans as like ignorant in some way that's not what i'm trying to say i'm just saying compared to politics engagement in politics i i would say the average football fan is far more engaged with their own football team than they are with the inner workings of government or the kind of policy decisions that that have a direct and kind of tangible impact on their lives and you know that that's a problem that is definitely something that's n not good you know, although I'm not a huge fan of the political system we have in England or, you know, the democratic systems in general, I think there could be some improvements. I'm not communist or anything, but I do think the systems we have are, for the most part, sort of fundamentally broken. Um, however, I do think it's important for the average person to be politically engaged because you can, if you are politically engaged, uh, make a difference. If you're engaged in politics, you can make informed decisions, you can be active uh, when it comes to the issues you care about personally and clearly that's important. But because football is so sort of hugely popular and you know so ubiquitous it really diverts a lot of attention away from politics and away from other things in general um, but, uh, but specifically away from politics and I, I think that's certainly a bad thing. And I guess that kind of leads me on to this idea of the way it manufactures emotion too. And I'll, I'll tell a story about our family friend here. I wouldn't name him for obvious reasons. Uh, but you know, he's a, a huge fan of his local team. Uh, has a, he's a season ticket holder, goes to every single game, absolutely loves his club. But it was becoming a problem for him, right? His team generally doesn't do particularly well, sometimes engaged in a relegation dogfight towards the end of the season, or it's kind of like mid-table team, so not not doing especially well, so, and lose fairly regularly. And what would happen is when his team won, he'd be absolutely elated all week, he'd be great company, you know, everything would be fine. When his team lost, or when his team was consistently losing, he'd be in a state of depression, uh, actually quite serious depression, you know. And I'm not saying that football was the sole reason for that. He may, for all I know, have some sort of pre-existing condition, but it was certainly being triggered by his passion for football and how much it was affecting him on a on an emotional level. Um, obviously, that's very unhealthy. Anyway, after many years, his wife, who was also given the backing of his children, I believe, uh, gave him an ultimatum and said, listen, this needs to stop. Uh, I can't be with you if you're going to be like this. It's it's like a nightmare to be around you a lot of the time. And he took it seriously. Obviously, he didn't want to lose his wife. He loves her very much. Didn't want to lose his kids. So he made a change. He still goes to the games, but he really made an active effort to distract himself from football. He got involved in other stuff, just doing a lot of other things with his spare time instead of focusing on football, uh, other hobbies he had, other interests, just really focusing more on that. And he was able to kind of sort it out and stop being so deeply emotionally invested in the performance of his team. I would say, you know, you can apply that to almost anything. You shouldn't really put your emotional well-being 
in the hands of someone else. It's something you need to take care of yourself and nurture yourself and deal with yourself. You shouldn't let, obviously external factors are gonna uh, make you happy, make you sad, but you shouldn't let those kind of external factors drive you down to the point where uh, you're held to be around for other people and almost certainly yourself too. Clearly that's, that's a terrible thing to do. You need to kind of care for yourself a little bit more than that in the first place and then yeah you need to take charge of your emotions really a bit, a bit more than that I feel. I think it's a good little story because it's a microcosm for what happens on a, either a larger or a smaller scale. I know I, I had a similar experience um, following the team I support uh, some years ago I actually made a conscious effort to to stop being so emotionally invested in the team because I was having a similar thing. I didn't have a girlfriend at the time, I was single, but I just found football was distracting me. When I'd watch my team on the weekend and they'd lose, it would take me a few days to kind of recover afterwards. And I don't know when exactly, but one day I just thought, this is not good, it's crazy behavior. Uh, I need to sort myself out. So the way I did it was just stopped watching football altogether for like a year. And then when I came back to it, I wasn't so invested emotionally in like the minutia of football and then the results of any given match so now i'm able to watch my team and i get happy if they win i get sad if they lose but you know when the game's over uh give it a few minutes i shrug it off and get on with my evening get on with my day whatever it's it's not such a big deal to me anymore so yeah when you look at all that i think it's pretty safe to say that football certainly does have a dark side and it's not focused on enough recently there's been a lot of talk in the media uh, about racism in football. There's been a few sort of high-profile cases uh, of racism in football, uh, particularly a young black player named Raheem Sterling, who plays for Manchester City, uh, has spoken up about it. It's been uh, very outspoken about it, which is great. So it has had some news coverage recently, but for the most part, uh, the media portrays football in a, in a sort of universally positive light, really. It just it gets 24-hour news coverage, and it's all just about kind of like how great football is, how amazing uh, matches are, how great the players are, covering the minutia of football tactics and opinion pieces on various clubs, that kind of thing. Uh, nothing, n not much at all on this kind of darker side of football, not enough focus on the negative aspects of it and what can be done to sort of remedy those. Certainly not enough about racism in football, certainly not enough about uh, football related violence completely nothing about the stigma of mental health and homosexuality in football almost nothing about that there was a very brief period after the one of the cases of suicide i mentioned of gary speed where the idea of mental health in football became a bit of a news story for a while and some uh big new news organizations kind of ran with it for a very short period of time but then you know it peters out they move on to other things um, and it's not really discussed again. Yeah, I just feel like there's not enough focus on that and people don't talk about it enough. Football is just kind of like universally accepted as being this great thing. Okay, it can be great, but it can be really, really bad too. And there are certainly some aspects of it which are terrible. However, having talked for a while now about how awful it can be, I want to just kind of offer a few counterpoints and just talk about some, some aspects of football that are certainly very positive. Uh, and certainly could be improved upon to become even more positive in the future. And I don't think it would really be fair of me to, to list all that negative stuff uh, anyway without talking at least a little bit about the good stuff too. As I said about it representing the worst aspects of capitalism, I think it can also uh, represent the best aspects of it too. 
since its inception really football's been a entertainment for the working classes and as it's kind of grown into the the modern version of football with, with all the money and everything involved in it now it really has the ability to empower the most impoverished people from the poorest parts of, parts of the world and give them not just personal wealth but generational wealth a lot of footballers coming from from very very poor parts of the world getting paid amazingly high wages in almost any other profession that they may have chosen uh, that level of success just wouldn't be possible i mean you could say music perhaps but not so much art maybe but not not really football can if you're from some of the poorest parts of the world can be your only realistic chance of becoming like mega rich so in that sense football really does have the power to yeah to lift up some of the most impoverished people from some of the most impoverished communities in the world and that for me represents the best aspect of, of capitalism also you know you think about players and managers and the people within football that, that actually play the game or are directly involved in the preparation for the game and everything the, the wages they get paid think about the insane amounts of money i'm not sure why people focus on them specifically but there does seem to be a lot of hate kind of directed at the amount of money that players earn etc i would just say well where would you prefer that money go it's just a fact that football generates huge amounts of money from sponsorship from merchandise sales from tv deals it just generates a huge amount of income uh, worldwide the biggest clubs in the world like generate massive amounts of money so they have huge amounts of money so where where do you think that money would be best placed other than going to the actual guys that are playing football for those clubs i mean they those are the guys that are representing the club those are the guys that are actually going out there on the pitch and winning games for the club so surely they deserve to be very well paid right in any industry where there's a disproportionately large amount of money Look at the tech industry for example wages comparatively speaking to other sectors are very high with football it's even more so right it's a very elite groups of people there's not a huge workforce and the the biggest names like look at some of the biggest names your uh, ronaldo's your messi's the ronaldo is a good example actually he he signed last year for juventus in italy from real madrid and they paid around 100 million euros for him and you can see why they did that right because it's not it's, it's not just that he is going to bring them results on the pitch it's a business decision having ronaldo in your shirt generates a ridiculous amount of shirt sales worldwide it raises the profile of your club it brings in new business you get new sponsorship deals everybody wants to be a part of the ronaldo sort of fanfare circus thing that that follows him around everywhere he goes uh businesses especially want to be part of that so you know it's an astute although he's an aging footballer and some might question uh him really truly being worth that that amount of money it's a sensible business decision and the wages they pay him too he, they're not going to lose money signing ronaldo even though his his transfer fee was so high and they had to pay his agent so much and everything else. That's why clubs are so willing to pay huge amounts of money for players that they either really believe are going to be stars. They buy up and coming players for less money that they uh, believe can become stars in the future. Other big clubs like to just sign the best players because they know, um, despite how they may or may not perform on the pitch, they're going to be able to 
make enough back from from them for the investment to to be worthwhile in the long run i think football certainly also has the power to educate although clearly racism exists within football and is prevalent within football um, it is also in other areas of society too in society at large but what football can do i think is really be a helpful and contributing factor in the fight against racism obviously teams these days are very much multiracial and you know if you grow up idolizing a certain player and he speaks out on racism or he's not the same race as you i think that's kind of likely to open your mind the best way to to combat racism i believe in my opinion and i think there's some certainly some uh, some research to back up this assertion that you have to get people while they're young if you've grown up with racist opinions and racist ideals and you've reached adulthood very very difficult for people to break you out of that you know your brain kind of forms physically in certain ways and you know it's difficult to break those kind of deeply ingrained uh, opinions and views of the world certainly young people love football and follow their teams just as closely if not more closely sometimes than the adults do so it certainly does have the potential to have an impact on younger people the players they idolize speaking out and like i said uh clubs campaigning that kind of thing i think can actually have a real effect but as john barnes said in the clip earlier it's not just racism in football that's the problem it's uh, racism in society as a whole and i just of the personal opinion that football could be a positive contributing factor in the fight against racism also not just racism but sort of open-mindedness in general there's a player called mohammed salah an egyptian player who plays for liverpool and he's a very affable character i think even rival fans although he does get abuse obviously um all players do by by rival fans but you know in particular because he's muslim etc he gets uh particularly vile abuse sometimes but he is a very affable character i think anybody that watches him talk or anything you, you kind of can't help but like him really he's got a nice laugh and he's open and i think it, it's great that we have figures like that muslim footballers that give a positive image of islam and i think the picture the media paints of islam perhaps i'm not saying you can totally forgive people for their bigoted opinions but i'm saying if you look at the the message that's that's hammered into them by media about what islam is and what it represents and then you look at someone like Mohammed Salah it's like a big juxtaposition it's like wait what the media is telling me all these terrible things about Muslim people but then over here I've got this amazing football player who seems like a lovely guy and he's super chilled out you know laughing and being a nice guy it's like well hang on a second someone's lying to me here so I think the more figures we have like that from different cultures, different religions in football, and the more kind of widespread the exposure is, that can really have an enlightening effect, I think, on young people especially, and make them realize that perhaps this message that they've been fed, either by the people close to them or by the media or whatever, is perhaps a, a load of bullshit. And I think that's a great, I think that's a great thing, and we need more of that. Also, like, like I mentioned, the the tribalism, the passion, the spirit of fans, it can unite communities, it can bring people together. Recently I watched this video of Ajax, Ajax made it to the Champions League semi-final and they won a domestic double this year for the first time in like close to 20 years, something like that. And the celebrations they had with the with the Ajax fans in Amsterdam looked absolutely amazing and everybody was on the streets having a great time, it was a big party and it can really give joy and uh, 
a sense of belonging and, and, and everything to people as well. So, so yeah, I think I want to leave it at that. I was talking about the dark side of football, but I don't want it just to be kind of like a, a depressing podcast, a slog to listen to. So I want to leave, <laughs> I want to leave the podcast on a positive note. And yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be releasing the second podcast uh, in two weeks time uh, on a totally different subject. And you can check out my website. It's nineyardspod.com. You can follow me at on Twitter at Nine Yards Pod, and yeah, I, I had fun doing it. Um, I hope it wasn't too boring, <laughs> and yeah, I'll hopefully see you again next week.